Welcome to the RoboHub podcast. In today's episode, we will hear yet again from Benjamin Pietro Filado, founder of Pliant Energy Systems, in the second half of his two-part interview. This time, Pietro talks to us about the deep-sea mining industry, which is an untapped industry with difficult barriers to entry and the chance for massive growth. The bottom of the ocean is still largely a mystery to us. And yet we do know that there are large amounts of polymetallic nodules that could hold the key to supplying the growing need for rechargeable batteries. Pietro discusses the current proposed solutions to deep-sea mining for these polymetallic nodules, which are actually quite environmentally destructive. He also proposes his own solution, which Pliant Energy Systems is working on developing, that uses a swarm of robots that can potentially mine with a significantly lower damage on the environment at the seabed. Our interviewer Abate found out more for us. Hey, welcome back, Pietro. Thanks, Abate. In the last episode, you touched on some of the future applications for the amphibious robot you're building with Pliant Energy Systems. And I know that there were many applications that you had in the pipeline, but I wanted to dive into the deep sea mining application that you mentioned. So firstly, what is deep sea mining? So deep sea mining is, it is a fairly esoteric subject still, but it's potentially an enormous uh, field that's going to affect uh, people's lives dramatically. And it's a field that has, it's an area of, of extraction that has the potential to have a planetary effect, a planet-wide effect on the ecosystem. Advocates say it would be positive. Uh, the opponents, of course, say it would be negative. And although there are various types of seabed mining that have been going on for a long time, what we're talking about in the context of today's seabed mining opportunity slash controversy is three main categories. Um, one is ferromanganese crusts. These are seamount crusts that contain levels of manganese, nickel, copper, cobalt, and rare earth elements. Uh, deep sea hydrothermal vents, where you also get those elements, copper and nickel and cobalt, and also uh, some, some more valuable metals. And then you have the polymetallic nodules that exist in the deep abyssal plains on mudflats, a depth of between three and six kilometers. And what we're going to be talking about today is specifically polymetallic nodule opportunity. Deep sea hydrothermal vents have gained a lot of attention and a lot of bad PR. And I think that bad PR to try to extract minerals, metals from deep sea hydrothermal vents is well placed because these are very unique ecosystems. These are cracks in the earth crust where uh, very hot water is seeping up through crevices. And you have these unique ecosystems that are chemosynthetic. So they don't get there. All life on the planet, we used to think, came from the sun, the point where energy enters the ecosystem um, through photosynthesis and then down on through the, through the chain. Deep sea hydrothermal vents, we discovered chemosynthesis was the basis of the whole food chain. So there's no light that gets anywhere close down there, several kilometers down, most of them. But the chemosynthetic bacteria harness chemical reactions, water seeping through these cracks, and they form the basis of the food chain. You have whole ecosystems of organisms living around these hydrothermal vents that are not found anywhere else in the world. In fact, it was the discovery of deep-sea hydrothermal vents that first had us thinking that they're that there might be life under the crusts of some of the moons around other planets. So we're going to be focusing on polymetallic nodules for a couple of reasons. First is probably the largest resource. There's an area of the Pacific Ocean, roughly between Mexico and Hawaii, where there's an estimated eight to $16 trillion worth of metals. And the polymetallic nodules just sit on the mud, on the top of the mud or partially buried in the mud, uh, they're potato size. So they're potato or golf ball, um, typically sized 
nodules, lumps, just sitting there on the surface, uh, you know, ripe for the picking, so to speak. Okay, so why, so why do people think that we need to mine the oceans? And the advocates of ocean mining uh, will say that, and there is definitely some merit to their claim, that in order to electrify the future economy, transport as well as industrial processes, we're going to need vast quantities of some key metals. We're going to need massive amounts of metals for driverless cars, for batteries, and even you know, battery-powered planes that we discussed. So we're going to need huge quantities of key metals. Right now, those are in particular are copper, nickel, cobalt, and lithium. We're going to need those metals on a vast scale. And the existing land deposits of those metals, extracting those is going to take a huge toll on the environment. A lot of the world's nickel is underneath rainforests uh, in, in Southeast Asia. And so the advocates of ocean mining say, well, rather than destroy land with land mining to try to get these metals, which we may not even have enough of on land, we should go down into the depths of the ocean and collect these polymetallic nodules. And the net environmental effect will be a tremendous positive for the whole world because you're providing cheap sources of metals for batteries for electrification without clear-cutting forests and the environmental damage of land-based mining is well known. People sort of accept it as a fact of life when they, they want their, uh, you know, their, their, their phones and their tablets. Those, the environmental damage done to extract the metals and process the materials for all the things that people want. It's out of sight, out of mind that there's some mine somewhere, especially with cobalt, which is a key ingredient in batteries now. Uh, cobalt mining is, a, uh, most of it comes from the Democratic Republic of Congo, about 65%. And there, are, there does a lot of issues of child labor, forced labor. Um, so cobalt is considered a controversial material that everybody, that we need in, in large quantities and everybody uh, relies on it for their electronic devices. But very few people are aware of, of the environmental and human toll uh, it's taking to, to retrieve this cobalt. So the beauty of polymetallic nodules is that they are pure metal. They formed over tens of millions of years. The way by which they form is a little bit mysterious, um, but we know that they take many, many millions of years, and it's a form of precipitation of these metals out of the seawater. So the proponents of polymetallic nodule mining point out that it's way less destructive way less impactful on the planet to extract these metals from down in the Bizzle Plains, where there's very little life. Uh, biomass is 300 times less than it is on land on average, and 1,500 times less than it would be in, a, say, a tropical rainforest in Indonesia, the, the biomass. But there is quite a lot of biodiversity down there. Um, and most of the biomass down there, by the way, is bacteria. So the existing methodology, the current way in which these polymetallic nodules are being harvested from the deep sea visual plains. And this is all experimental mining, uh, exploratory. There is no commercial mining yet taking place. But the current methodology uses these very large machines, enormous, uh, they look like earth moving machines. They have uh, caterpillar tracks and they go along the, crawl along the, the sea floor and they scoop up the top few centimeters of, of sediment and the nodules and of course anything that might be living there, any organisms um, at the same time. So everything in the path of the tracked crawler, they tend to be called tracked crawlers, is killed. And then the from the machine, the nodules and the mud and anything that's been swept up gets pumped to a surface ship several kilometers above using a pumped riser. So an enormous tube that goes from the tracked crawler uh, all the way up to the, to the surface ship. How long would that be? It would be, well, five kilometers long is, it would be typical because they tend to occur between three and six kilometers. In the clarion clipton zone, this, it tends to be about five kilometers. So it's a five kilometer long pipe. So this is technology that current methodology is borrowed from uh, land mining uh, techniques and technologies and, and very well established methods and the oil and gas uh, industry. So the oil industry is capable of, of uh, uh, building pumped risers that it, that that uh, lift petroleum from several kilometers down to a tanker ship. So that's the conventional approach. And uh, once the nodules and the slurry reach the surface ship, 
the nodules are separated out from the seawater and the slurry that was sucked up over the bottom. And then that water has to be returned to the ocean at, at some point in the water column. So the environmental concerns people have are the tract crawlers kill everything in their path. The sediment becomes compacted and then the return, the slurry that's returned, uh, can create sediment plumes. And the tract crawler itself, the process of sifting through, of scooping up the sediment creates enormous sediment plumes. People are concerned that there are enormous sediment plumes. And the sediment, people are concerned it will travel some distance. And when it settles, it'll you know coat everything with a, you know, a fine coat of sediment. And everything down there pretty much, uh, uh, all the sessile organisms are, are filter feeders. So the sediment, the fear is the sediment will, will block their filters and, and create death through smothering, essentially, through not being able to feed, will create that death beyond the actual, uh, the actual area of mud that's scooped up by the, by the tract crawler. Mm-hmm. So this is something that's already happening right now. There are already companies out there who have the rights to mine the deep sea and they are causing this environmental damage. Well, it, not quite. So there are there are so the Clarion Clipperton zone, which is a, a, a that area, vast area in the Pacific Ocean, uh, is under the authority of the International Seabed Authority, the ISA. And the ISA is a UN body. They have jurisdiction over any sub-ocean resource that is outside of territorial waters and outside of exclusive economic uh, zones. The ISA's jurisdiction of any uh, seabed asset in international waters that's outside of territorial waters and outside of uh, any country's uh, economic uh, exclusion zone. It's about 200 miles around any nation. They have the right to exploit what's there. Most of the world's oceans uh, lie outside of any national jurisdiction. So the ISA has jurisdiction over any seabed resource in international waters. And several countries have claims to stretches of seafloor within the clarion Clipperton zone in the Pacific Ocean. Mm-hmm. And that's not because it's within the 200-mile range of their own country. It's that they just put in a request to be able to extract from there. That, no, that's a good question. I don't know why, uh, why some countries have claims in the clarion Clipperton zone and others don't. I know why the U.S. doesn't have a claim. The U.S. doesn't have a claim because the U.S. Uh, has not signed the U.N. Convention on the Law of the Sea. There's been some resistance in Congress uh, people who believe the UN should stand alone, that the US should stand alone, and not be bound by international laws. Like we're not part of the. Um, there are various international treaties that the US hasn't joined, and so the US is not part of, has not signed the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea. So the US doesn't have oh, a right to stake a claim in the Clarion Clipperton Zone. Is this a recent um, law that, or a recent agreement? Is this from the nineties? It's what from the yeah, happen? it's from the nineties. So the the ISA was set up in the nineties to look at the issues of seabed of who owns the rights to minerals or any other resource in international waters. And part of the the reason they were set up was that nobody it, back in the nineteen seventies, Lockheed, a subsidiary of Lockheed Martin and some other companies, started looking at at, at harvesting these polymetallic nodules, but there weren't there were no regulations about how it should be done. There was no legal framework to say that this patch of seabed belongs to us. Um, so it didn't really belong to anybody. So uh, people didn't have rights. They didn't have a concession rights to, to extract minerals So from the seabed. So it became the vagueness of who really owns that material made it, made it impractical for companies to invest money in, in trying to extract it because it wasn't really theirs to extract. And once you find this great deposit, who's to stop somebody else from coming along and, you know, cannibalizing or uh, taking over your claim if there's no jurisdiction, there's no legal framework to establish who has right to what, to mine what, where. So the I would say, say was set up in the 1990s and countries can make claims, not the U.S., because we're not signatories to the uh, U.N. Convention on the Law of the Sea, but various countries have claims. And then those countries have contractors that then go and apply for permits to do experimental mining within various national claims within the the clarion Clipperton zone. Um, and so, you know, a foreign company can be a contractor for a country that has a claim but doesn't necessarily have any ability to mine it. 
So like Jamaica and, you know, Cuba, all these, Venezuela, a lot of countries that we don't normally think of as being industrialized countries, they have claims in the clarion Clipperton zone and there will be foreign companies will come and do the mining and so forth for them. And what hasn't yet been worked out by the ISA, what are the regulations on how um, these resources should be extracted? What environmental safeguards should be put in place? Uh, who benefits financially from the extraction of those those metals? So obviously the mining company has to get a return. The nation, the nation who has the claim has to, to get a share, but also some of the returns from that mining has to go into into a fund that's going to help the whole world. So some kind of a global fund to benefit all nations, because the thinking is that those resources belong to the world, not not to any particular country or, or any mining company. Some of the profits from mining has to be put into a fund, a UN fund that benefits you know the world more widely. And I don't think they finalized all the rules for that. So right now mm-hmm. you have several mining companies working under several national jurisdictions with claims in the clarion Clipperton zone are doing experimental mining. So they have smaller scale um, uh, mining machines, crawlers that are going and lifting just a few nodules rather than an you know, industrial scale, full scale mining operation. Mm-hmm. And are, are these, these companies, these mining companies that are working in these, I think you mentioned three island countries, it was uh, Cuba, Jamaica, and I forget what the third one was. Yeah, there are there are several. Um, I think there are several really come islands that you the Cook Islands, for example. There are several mm-hmm. island Pacific Island nations that have claims. And is this just because the mining companies have very strong lobbying power within those countries, and they're maybe um, taking advantage of the fact that there are laxer laws over there that allow them to operate? I don't know that that's the case. I think that um, there is a sense that these Pacific Islands, some of these Pacific Islands. Given that they are closer to some of these Pacific islands, uh, you know, a lot of them have uh, issues of poverty, uh, and I think it's seen by some as an opportunity for them to benefit from an ocean ocean resource other than fishing. I don't. I'm, th- there may be stories about um, corruption that I'm not. I'm not aware of those. Mm-hmm. There was there was a company that got in trouble with a with an island nation, and the, the island ended up. Losing a couple hundred million dollars is a bit of a bit of a catastrophe catastrophe for them, uh, small island. Yeah, but and yeah. it sounds it sounds like there are a lot of different players involved in this deep sea mining controversy. So there's political powers, um, countries that want to generate more wealth for themselves. Um, there's also a lot of private companies who want to actually extract the items from the deep sea, and then there's also the beneficiaries, say the the Teslas of the world, the the Apples of the world, who want to make uh, a lot of products with lithium ion batteries, or uh, sorry, cobalt based batteries, um, not lithium ion, and and such. Could you just describe that that landscape for us? Uh, yeah. So there, there. It's a very. So we have this resource that's there. Uh, and it just so happens that everything you need to make today's car batteries is sort of found in one lump. It's found in these nodules, nickel, copper, cobalt, um, manganese. And it's such a, it is a, it is a huge resource, but it's very hard to get to. Uh, the technology hasn't been developed effectively. And that's, that's something I can get back to as a technology, which is you know, where, where we come in. There is obviously mining companies want to make money. They have to make money. There is also a national security element to this because a lot of these metals metals are critical for uh, defense applications. So you have some countries that are jumping in. Um, China is is way ahead of everybody, every every other national jurisdiction. They have claims in the the Clarion Clipton zone. They... um, and I think the U.S. is starting to be concerned now that we have our problem with rare earth uh, element, um, rare earth supplies in the U.S. We've been concerned about that for a while. It's almost all of it comes from China. Uh, so the U.S. is trying to ramp up its rare earth production. Australia also has some. So there's a concern that's growing that even now when it comes to these polymetallic nodules and the mix of minerals that they have, that once again, China is going to get there first and is going to, you know, is going to corner the market 
and be the or, or be the main supplier of these uh, of these elements of these metals. But right so far, the U.S. is not <clears throat> has not jumped in. You've got U.S. companies that are getting involved, technology companies, some mining companies, um, but not the U.S. government is still is seems to be very quiet uh, about this. You have environmentalists. Some say we need these metals because we need to decarbonize and electrify, and we need to extract huge quantities of metals in order to do that. And we don't have the reserves on land to do that, or the reserves we have on land to get to them, to extract them, are going to take a huge environmental toll. A lot of the, lot of the nickel uh, reserves, for example, are underneath uh, rainforests in Southeast Asia. And to extract that nickel is going to create environmental catastrophe an order of magnitude worse than extracting nickel from these polymetallic nodules, which you know, the environmental damage advocates say down in the oceans is going to be almost insignificant. Others say that that environmental damage, you cannot say it's insignificant at all. We just don't know enough about how, we don't know enough about how the global uh, ocean ecosystems are interconnected. So we might wipe out an ecosystem or part of an ecosystem in, in the abyssal plains where these nodules are, it might not seem to matter down there as many kilometers down, but then again, it might. Um, so what what Plant Energy has been doing along with this company that we founded called Nacrom is that we are proposing a way to get these, the metals that we need to decarbonize and electrify the economy from the oceans without creating the environmental destruction that the environmentalists fear. So at Pliant Energy Systems, what are you guys doing to be able to solve or try to get a piece of this market of the deep sea mining? So we have a, yeah, we have a robotic system that has some unique characteristics that we think are very well suited to this problem. Uh, and in addition to that, we have a system-wide plan for how, to, how this should be done. We have a robotics application uh, with autonomy and swarming that has the potential to affect the ecosystem in a positive way at a, at a global scale um, through through seabed mining, and which is a very mm-hmm. controversial field. There are three main types of seabed mining that are being discussed at the moment: uh, ferromanganese crusts, deep sea hydrothermal vents, and polymetallic nodules. How does Pliant Energy Systems and the robots that you produce play into this ecosystem of uh, deep sea mining? Yeah, so there are a few ways in which uh, to answer that question. So our robot has, as I mentioned last week, we have the characteristic of very high static thrust per watt, very high efficiency, and also very rapid local maneuverability. So the ability to turn quickly, to change directions quickly at the local level um, so these these robots are, they sense the fins are more like caterpillar tracks to make an analogy than wheels. And it means that you get an almost instantaneous thrust. You move the fin a little bit, the robot's going to instantly move a little bit. You stop the fin, the robot instantly stops. And when you say it's like, sorry to interrupt you, but when you say it's like caterpillar wheels as opposed to regular wheels, you mean as in the ability to say, Uh, go forward on the left side of your wheels and then go backwards on the right side and be able to do very tight turns. It's that, but it's also the very large surface area. So a a Caterpillar tracked vehicle, you have this long flat area of contact with the ground as opposed to a wheel, which is, you know, the tangent of a wheel is is an infinitely small point. Obviously wheels don't meet at that tiny point, um, but a wheel is making a fairly small surface area with the ground, right? You just have these two wheels, four point in the car, you've got four points or truck, you have four points of contact with the ground. And when you accelerate, you are relying on friction between those four points of contact uh, uh, in order to, to, to be able to get a reaction force and move forward. Same thing for braking. But the Caterpillar track, the same vehicle, for example, of the same weight, Rather than resting on four points, all the weight is being distributed on four points. The weight is distributed over the whole length of the of the track. So it's like it's like resting on two very large rectangles of of uh, ground. And so traction is is very is excellent because you're distributing your weight over a large area. And so when you want to move forward, you have the reaction force of your forward movement against the ground. 
there's no slippage because you've, you're spreading your weight out. Um, so you have enough friction to, to move forward almost immediately. You don't see Caterpillar track vehicle spinning its tracks, right? In, unless it's in very, you know, very, very unusual uh, slippery circumstances. The tracks, they, they dig into the ground or they make contact with the ground over a large area. And when that track moves, the vehicle moves, you know, almost always, whereas with a wheel, the same amount of weight is distributed on, on a point. It's a point loading. So you're relying on friction at a point as opposed to friction over the distributed area. So the analogy I make with um, marine robotics application, and it's not a perfect analogy. It's like a propeller is more like a wheel. Our fin is more like a caterpillar track. So the propeller spins fast, sends a jet of water rapidly in one direction or another, whereas our fins move slowly and move large amounts of water slowly. But we have a large surface area of water that we interact with relative to the, to the mass of the vehicle. So that gives you a very almost instantaneous thrust when if the undulation travels, you know, two inches that way, the body is going to move two inches, not quite, but in the other direction in a very predictable way. Mm-hmm. The way that a, that a caterpillar track, once the track starts moving, the vehicle moves because it's spreading all its weight out and it has enough friction. We have enough fluid structure interaction surface area in our fin to get a similar effect. Mm-hmm. And how does that help you with, say, picking up these uh, little balls on the bottom of the seafloor? So the key advantage is that if you're going to do a task like looking around and picking things up, it's going to require a lot of movements, a lot of uh, frequent motions. It's going to require turning, moving this way, moving that way, maybe uh, maybe backing up a little bit. Uh, the way you might see, you know, the way you might see uh, a sea otter moving around. So that local agility, being able to move left and right, back and forward, we think that's going to be uh, necessary to effect- effectively pick up these nodules because they're going to be done one at a time in this methodology. You know, and there may be, as opposed to having them all scooped up at once, there may be the, your robot may have several different arms on it to pick up multiple uh, nodules uh, as it moves over an area, but it's still going to need to be able to move around in, a, in an agile manner and cover a lot of ground without draining its battery too fast. So the other key element of the, the way these fins work is in addition to giving the robot very good local maneuverability, very good traction, so to speak, in the water, it also, uh, they're very efficient. So an efficient propulsion system means you know, more nodules collected per robot before it has to go up and go back to the charging station and recharge its batteries. Mm-hmm. And is the charging station something like a very long uh, electrical cable that goes down to the bottom of the seafloor and just has something that it plugs into. What is yeah, that? that's right. So there'll be a surface chip, and then the surface chip will feed power and communications down to the mining area. Uh, and that technology is, is pretty well worked out from from the oil and gas and the other sea cable industry. So the ship might move along, and it has this uh, cable with a station, charging station, and a communications station at the bottom. In the mining area, the robots are in constant communication with the sea bottom end of the communications of the to the surface ship, uh, and they're able to to recharge that way as well. You cannot communicate over long distances through water uh, right now. There's no tech sonar tech. There's no acoustic modem technology that 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 gets anything like the kind of bandwidth that you would want at a local level now. Uh, there are optical modems that are, that are very high bandwidth. They'll work over a certain distance. So the idea is that you have very, you have a high-speed connection to the surface ship, giving instructions and monitoring what the robots are doing through, through an optic fiber cable. And then within the mining zone, you're using optical modems, which also high bandwidth, to communicate with the robots and for the robots to communicate with each other in the swarm and to come up with a collective action. So these optical modems, are they used for uh, local communication? Um, is yes. it possible to say like, just, you know, in very simplified um, term, but just put like a very long cable with a local internet connection from the surface all the way down to the base as well, and then create this um, sort of local network through the water? Yes yeah, so or no. So what I meant was, so you have the, from the surface ship down to the mining area where the robots are, you have a, a, a optic fiber you have that a cable connection, a physical connection. Beyond when you get out to the individual robots in the swarm, they're using an optical modem that sends uh, transmits pulses of light actually through the water. So they're not physically connected to each other. 
but the pulses of light can travel through water, you know, very, obviously very quickly. And the, they have receivers and transmitters. So they're sending, the robots are sending and receiving very fast pulses of light to each other through the water. That isn't going to travel indefinitely, right? So that signal will dissipate fairly quickly compared with an acoustic modem. But the problem with acoustic modems uh, is that they have, they're very low bandwidth. So you have a very high bandwidth connection to the surface ship from the mining area with a cable. And then from the mining area, from the end of the cable out to the swarm of robots, you have optical modems that transmit pulses of light through the water. Water is the medium instead of the cable. And that requires that the robots not be too far apart. And it requires mm -hmm. that not too much sediment uh, is, it depends on the turbidity of the water, not too much sediment needs to be kicked up. And what that brings me to are we talking really about? the key that brings me to the key advantage of this robotic system over the traditional system is that we don't create these sediment plumes. So instead of having a huge crawler move over the mud, scoop up the mud, scoop up the nodules, scoop up any life, and send them to the shore through an enormous send them to the surface ship through a huge pumped riser. The swarm of robots basically skips over the surface of the mud, doesn't even need to make contact with the mud, and plucks the nodules out individually with a series of claspers, plucks them out of the, out of the sediment without disturbing significantly the sediment, and putting them in, in baskets that are raised to the surface with gas bags or other type of lifting vessel. And so we create very little sediment disturbance. Another advantage of the traveling wave fins is, as I mentioned before, we, we move large volumes of water slowly with those fins instead of moving small volume of water very fast or a, a small jet very fast. So we, we don't kick up as much sediment with our fins as you would with a propeller system. In your description, you mentioned a couple changes from what we spoke about last time towards the, the robot, uh, one of which is these grippers that you're going to put on the, on the robot itself to pick up the nodules. Yeah. What other changes do you need to make to let this work in the deep sea and, you know, also give us an idea of what the type of pressure is like and what other changing environment factors there are. Yeah. The, the pressures are absolutely enormous at five kilometers. You have the weight of five kilometers of water pushing down on you. So making a technology deep sea capable, um, you know, that that's part of the challenge, but it's one that's been largely met, largely understood how to make things deep sea capable. It's not easy, but it's an engineering challenge that has been, uh, that is solvable. And there's nothing about our technology that makes it any less easy or less hard to make it deep sea capable. So if anything is capable of going at deep sea, uh, at handling those pressures, our robotic system uh, is just as capable. I mean, one thing to mention is that for a small vehicle like that, under that depth, you don't try to have a, a you don't have any air in the system. So you don't have a dry hull uh, with water pressing around the outside of it, it would just be, it would have to be inches thick of steel in order not to collapse. So that hollow hole is what um, makes it difficult to produce something for um, very deep. For example, to carry a person down to those deep depths, depths has been done very infrequently, but a robot could do better there. Right, because what happens with the robot, you don't put any air in there. So you can use oil, a non-compressible oil, inside the inside the body of the robot right so that there's no there's no collapse pressure therefore sending people down to the ocean you know is very difficult because it has to be air which under pressures now your container containment vessel to maintain the air has to be ridiculously thick uh and humans have to be kept warm they have to you know they have to breathe they have to eat there are all these it's very difficult as it is with space to have people go down in the deep ocean so we see the deep ocean is like one of the places for robotics and for autonomy in particular. You know, there, there's been a there's been a huge amount of work done on driverless cars, really great work, um, but we don't really need driverless cars, right? Uh, people are capable of driving cars. People are not capable of mining uh, polymetallic nodules at five kilometers depth. They're just not. And it doesn't make sense to send people down there in, in these chambers. Um, so this is a really a place for robotics uh, and it's a place for autonomy uh, and it's a place for swarming technology to really come into its own. It is, you know, it's, it's not necessarily easy technology uh, to solve. Uh, there are a number of things that have to come together. You mentioned the, the grippers that's an, and the, the handling technology 
how to manipulate the nodules, how the, the swarm of robots know where they are relative to each other, know where the drop-off points are, where the nodules are, are, are raised to the surface with these lifting bags or lifting vessels. Those are all challenges to be worked out, but they are challenges that people are working out already uh, doing really amazing work up on land where things are easier. So when you look at something like um, Boston Dynamics, where they're amazing, uh, they're robots, they, they're an amazing company, they've done, done, they're doing extraordinary work, but the humanoid robot that can you know, stack boxes now, uh, for example, um, you can get a minimum wage worker to stack boxes, probably still better. So we tend to develop robotics on land to try to show how amazing they are by doing things that people can do, right? That's sort of, a, it's, it's what blows people away is to see a robot doing something that a person might do. But really the place, and that's great work, and it's, it's led to massive progress. But the place where robotics is going to come into its own, I believe, is in environments where people cannot go, doing things that people cannot easily do. And polymetallic nodule harvesting is a perfect, uh, a perfect application for that. Because if, this, if these nodules were on land, you would have people doing it because they're just sitting there like potatoes strewn around the ground. People could walk along and pick them up, put it in a basket. Very easy to do. Not possible at five kilometers depth. So the solutions people have come up with are these enormous machines that scoop them up, pump them to the surface in these pipes. Um, and that, that approach to mining these nodules has, has, has really raised an alarm. And whether people's concerns are, the environmentalists' concerns are, without saying whether how legitimate they are, uh, and you can certainly see that there is going to be massive opposition to a method of extracting these metals that is it, even visually uh, is it, sort of frightening looking with these huge machines. So what Plant Energy is doing is we have, uh, we're part of a consortium called NACROM. Uh, it's spelled N-A-C-R-O-M, stands for North American Consortium for Responsible Ocean Mining. And we are trying to advocate for an alternative to the existing methodology for extracting these these resources in a way that is effectively environmentally uh, benign um, with the robots that pick up nodules without touching the mud and barely disturbing the mud. Um, and potentially, we could even go as far as for every nodule you swap out, you replace it with a, a low-value stone that was brought down perhaps as a ballast. One of the environmental concerns, uh, in addition to scooping up the sediment, killing everything, uh, and creating sediment plumes that will smother life further away from the mining site, one of the concerns is that, well, these nodules are habitats for animals that attach themselves. Uh, and even though the biomass is very low down there, the, the biodiversity is quite high. So one way of addressing that problem with a, a smart swarm of, of robots is that you simply swap out the nodule with a with a, a low value of stone onto which organisms that require a substrate can settle in and then grow. Another advantage of, of a robotic swarm moving along is that you've got many, many eyes and each robot in order to be able to carry out its task is going to have be equipped with many cameras. And those cameras will be able to record any life that it does see. So if you know the a nodule with their polyp growing on it or a sponge growing on it is that they're not like most of them don't have that, right? But if a robot in the swarm comes across a nodule with something and, and it's, you know, again, it's going to have, it's going to require many aspects of, of, of AI to make all this work. So it's computer vision is going to recognize a type of sponge uh, and it's, or, or a, a coral, and it's going to take a picture of it and it's going to send that picture via its first vice optical modem and then up through the, through the cable to the surface ship of that organism and it's going to tag it and it's going to leave it there. And maybe it'll leave a few nodules sitting around it as well. That, that, that will get left alone. The other robots, because they're collectively doing this, will know that, okay, we don't touch that one. We don't touch the ones around it. And now you've got a database of every single, every single living thing that these robots have been able to identify uh, is going to be recorded up at the surface ship for marine biologists and, and, and so forth to, to look at. And how are we... How are we gathering information to even know what is on the seabed right now to mine? Are they using some sort of seabed mapping technology to be able to tell that there are these nodules on the floor there? Yeah, that's right. They are. 
they're using uh, uh, remotely operated vehicles and autonomous vehicles to, you know, the sort of torpedo-like autonomous vehicles to do to do the scans. And this has been going on since the, the 70s. There's been the mapping characterization of these of these of these nodules. And scientists and the mining companies, the mining companies are obliged to do environmental studies, uh, constantly sending um, sending experimental vehicles down there to take samples of mud to take up a few nodules at a time and see what's growing on them, see what the their metallic content is, and also get a sense of what organisms are being disturbed by the process. So there's a tremendous amount of work going on. It's very difficult work because of the depth, but there's a tremendous amount of work going on to characterize not just the, the nodule fields from a geological or a mining perspective, but from an ecological perspective. But it's very difficult to know what the consequences of this will be using these techniques that people are proposing now. It's going to be very difficult to, to say what the adverse effects will be. Um, we know that there, the biomass is very low, 1,500 times less by some accounts than what you might find in a tropical rainforest, 300 times less than what's on most of the earth. And most of that biomass is a bacteria, uh, by the way, but there, there is a tremendous biodiversity and there are a lot of organisms that we've that have been discovered during this exploration process. The ocean mining companies themselves have been discovering species after species for scientists uh, in the process of trying to categorize uh, categorize the resource and also to find out just how harmful it might be and how to mitigate that harm. But nevertheless, nobody really knows what the effect will be of plowing up the sediment and sucking everything up to the surface and pumping the sl slurry back down. Mm -hmm. We propose, therefore, not to to remove the nodules while creating as little disturbance as possible uh, using uh, using a robotic swarm, autonomous swarm, and planned energy systems robots are ideally suited to that task because of their uh, high efficient thrust their, and their very good local maneuverability. The kind of maneuverability I think will be needed for a task like scouting around, moving left, right, here and there, moving over to grab this one, grab that one. That kind of like quick motion that you might see a sea otter do, it's very hard to do with a, with a propeller-driven system, which you have to wind up and wind down uh, different propellers. Or, or if you have a fewer propellers, you have to go into stop it and reverse it and go backwards. Not easy to do. Um, we think we can do it, that kind of agile local motion in water very easily with our system. There may be other robotic systems that can do it as well. We see plants, uh, our type of our platform as being ideal for this task, but we also are taking a, a, we're also taking a, a, a view of the whole system of ocean mining. We would like to eliminate the pump to risers. Right now, the when the, the giant crawler moves through the mud and strips up the, the mud and sediment and the nodules and they pump it to the surface using an enormous five-kilometer-long pipe borrowed from the oil and gas industry, as I think we already mentioned, we want to basically send the nodules up in packets rather than up a tube that, you know, if it fails, the whole mining operation comes to a halt. So another advantage of, of using autonomous robots is that we don't have this enormous machine, which is a single point of failure. What happens if one of these giant mining machines, once commercial mining begins, what happens if it, if a single bolt blows in one of its caterpillar tracks? I mean, all the whole operation comes to a, comes to an end, right? And, uh, Raising one of those to the surface to repair is, I mean, that's difficult, expensive, and dangerous. A lot of repairs are not going to be able to be carried out down there. So we're sort of, we're using the idea of autonomous robotic swarm is a distributed system. So you have many, many robots working collectively to gather these nodules. If one or more of them goes under, that's okay. The mining continues. And rather than using one giant straw to suck the nodules to the surface, that if that straw gets clogged or breaks down, everything stops. We propose sending the nodules up in packets. So the robot swarms will be able to put our nodules in, in baskets, and those baskets will be lifted to the surface in, in packets. And if one gets lost, that's okay. Same thing with the mining, with the robots. If a robot drops a nodule, that's okay. You're looking at having many hands working collectively uh, to achieve a task which is much harder to disrupt than it would be if you have a single huge mining vessel or a single giant pipe pumping mm -hmm. to the surface. And this bucket has the advantage of not being 
pressurized the way that the this large straw would be and this can be one of the other advantages of that bucket yeah and the, the bucket and the and there's another need so when these buckets arrive at the surface going to need to be collected right and there's another there's a job for autonomous surface ships right and there are probably autonomous drones in the sky uh, monitoring where these where the nodule baskets arrive at the surface they have to be detected uh, so you've got autonomous drones looking for these nodules to appear you've got autonomous surface ships collecting them and bringing them to the mothership mm-hmm. and it's um the riser is also a, a, we think a big energy a big energy hog because and that's you know if you if you're claiming that this mining process is ultimately good for the environment, which I think there is a case to be made. I, I think the way it's being done now, I think we need to do it a lot in a lot better way. But if you want to make the case that there's an environmental reason to do this mining, you need to think about your energy budget. And uh, pumping nodules up a pipe for five kilometers has got to be a very energy intensive process. Um, if you're pumping oil up, then 100% of what you're pumping is your product. So that's okay. But if you're pumping nodules up, most of what you're pumping is water, right? For five kilometers. So for, for the nodules trip to the surface, it's kind of wants to fall down the whole time as it's heavier than the water. And so you're pumping huge quantities of water up five kilometers to try to sweep up the nodules along the way. So the nodules are sort of doing, you know, two step forward, one step back, but they're getting to the surface. But it's a very, uh, it's a very energy intensive process which most of what you're pumping is water that's just trying to sweep along some nodules along the way. Whereas with a system that a system that we propose, and I think there are probably others that are looking at this, but it's not public, uh, where you use a pressure system to raise a basket of nodules to the surface is you need to inflate or pressurize, uh, pressurize a chamber to expand uh, that's attached to the nodule basket to make the nodule basket lighter than water. So once the nodule and a lift vessel above it that's holding onto it is lighter than the water around it, it will start to raise, it'll start to rise. And once you've created that pressure difference to get the nodule basket to start rising, the trip to the surface is basically energy free. It's going to go you know, all the way to the top. There's no more. You have an initial input of energy to displace water in the lift vessel to make the lift vessel plus nodules lighter than the water around it for that given volume. And then from that point on, it's a free trip up to the surface. It's not <clears throat> constantly applying energy to lift it, lift it, lift it with water when the nodule wants to fall back down the whole time. So I think there's an energy, <clears throat> there's an energy issue with a conventional method that we have a, the, dis, the distributed method using individual, using baskets, with lift bags or lift vessels has an energy advantage. It also has a potentially a financial advantage in, in reducing the risk in that if your mm-hmm. pump riser breaks down or your giant crawler breaks down, everything stops. So there's also an energy advantage to not using that pump riser. I mentioned that. Um, what if the pump riser breaks down and you've got five kilometers of nodules and now all going to fall down, right? So I don't know what the density is, but maybe you've got a, you've got a, a five kilometer riser in which which has stopped pumping. And maybe the last one kilometer is just solid nodules because they all fall down. And how do you get that started again? There was some really great work being done on that, but it's very difficult, very difficult, very expensive. And you're putting all your eggs in one basket. Essentially, they're putting all their eggs in two baskets with the current methodology, the giant crawler and the pump riser. We, di- we propose a distributed system using autonomous robots. Mm-hmm. And not only that, but if you're also replacing the nodules on the seabed floor with this uh, other low-cost rock, then you could use a sort of pulley system to counterweight the nodules going up with this cheaper rock coming back down so that you can use even less energy. That's right. Yeah, that's a good point. So yeah, so it's like a ballast. So you, you need to you need something to weigh you down to get you to the bottom. And then you just, yeah, exactly. You swap it with the nodules and then off you go. So you've got a conveyor belt. Exactly. Not literally a conveyor belt, but in terms of where mass is being distributed, that's what you have, yes. So the other question is, is this doable, right? So, you know, we, Pline Energy has developed a platform we think is very suitable, but there's going to be all kinds of expertise, all kinds of specialties in autonomy and robotics and control. AI is going to be required to make this possible. Is it, How feasible is it? So there's the deep sea side of it, which is a solvable problem. 
this approach is no more deep sea uh, challenging than any other approach. Um, and I would say that it's absolutely doable, or it will be very soon. When you look at the, uh, for example, we're very close to having autonomous fruit picking robots, right? So they can, in a cluttered 3D environment, they're able to distinguish fruit from leaves and grip it and, and remove it without, without crushing or bruising it. By comparison, uh, collecting nodules off the seafloor is very simple. It's a 2D, essentially the nodules are on a 2D plane. Right. There's no clutter. There's no leaves in the way. The nodules are metallic, so it's very easy to detect them. Uh, and there are various ways to detect metal objects sitting in mud beyond the beyond cameras, beyond the visual. Uh, and thirdly, the nodules are not going to bruise. So, um, and, and if you drop one, it's okay, right? Because there are several trillion dollars worth of them, right? Appliance interest in this is, in the one hand, we have a, what we think is a great application for our fairly unique uh, robotic platform. We also believe that if it's done in, in, in a way that's environmentally benign, that yes, extracting these critical minerals for our decarbonized future could be a, a tremendous net positive you know, for the world going forward. But we also see the advances that will have to be made to really make this work, right? To make it so that they're very they, the robots have to have to be really good. The autonomy, the algorithms, everything has to be really, really, really good. And that's going to take time. It's going to be expensive, right? So generally speaking, in technology development, it takes uh, it takes a big push to get a technology over the line in terms of making it mass producible, in terms of making it ubiquitous and it being cheap enough to be introduced into everyday life. And usually, that's you know, it's been done by you know by the military. Um, you know, for national defense, obviously, everybody who's listened to this podcast probably knows the history of the early history of computing and, and GPS and so forth. And the other way that these technologies get advanced to the point where they're ubiquitous is through private industry where there's a lot of money to be made, right? So you've got to either have national defense or greed in order to push a technology over the line, greed by somebody or if you want to not use the word greed, just, you know, there's a need for you know, to make money from any, any endeavor. So I see the development of autonomous, these autonomous uh, robotic swarms that can harvest, that can harvest nodules. I see that as now making that technology available for other things closer to shore. So the mining industry invests them, has the motivation due to the profit to invest the money to mature this technology that is truly effective. The swarming, uh, the AI, the computer vision, uh, the manipulation of the nodules, all that will take uh, a lot of work and it'll be expensive, but it'll be carried out because the financial rewards for somebody, for the mining companies is, is very high. Now that technology has been matured that it can be used for other things. Now the, you know, the robots are produced on assembly lines. They're being mass produced, so they're very affordable. So now what do we well now what is this technology good for? And now there are a great many uses uh, close to shore. Uh, I'll name a few. Uh, one of them, for example, is uh, seagrass uh, replanting. You know the world has lost most of its seagrass beds uh, over the last century, and seagrass is, uh, beds are actually one of the best carbon sinks that there is, in addition to being really good ecosystems for uh, with great biodiversity, uh, fish spawning habitats and so forth. Uh, seagrass is a critically uh, important for carbon sequestration and, 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 and biodiversity and a host of other things. So to be able to replant seagrass using these robots that were developed for mining, to be able to replant seagrass at an industrial scale. So we're talking about hundreds of thousands of square miles of seagrass need to be replanted. Uh, around the world, maybe millions of square miles. It's not a task that people can do, right? It's not a task that is easy for people to do. Right now, there are, you know, there are high school kids that go out the weekend uh, in snorkels and they try to plant seagrass. And it's a great thing, um, but it's not, it's not, it's not enough, right? We need to do it at a seagrass replanting. For example, it needs to be done at a massive scale. Uh, and here is a case where autonomy developed for something that people cannot do, which is collect nodules, can now be used for something like replanting seagrass on a massive scale that people you know, cannot do by hand. It's not a manual task that mm -hmm. can be done. Stacking boxes is a manual task that can be done. We don't need robots for that. Uh, replanting 
seagrass on a massive scale is not an easy task for people to do. People are not meant for the water. Robots are meant, don't care about water. Um, the, the effort on autonomy, you could argue, in robotics should be in places and doing things that people can't do, which is why marine robotics is, the marine environment is one of the places where, where robotics is really going to come into its own. Another example of how this technology could be used once it's been developed for mining is things like scallop fishing. So scallop, uh, scallop trawling is very environmentally destructive. They use these trawl nets with weights and they, you know, they, they strip the surface, they strip up everything on the seafloor. If you could send out a swarm of autonomous robots to just pick up the scallops one by one and place them in a container to be lifted to the surface, you're, that's a huge environmental benefit to not be scouring the, 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 everything on the floor with a, with a trawl net. Same thing with things like, you know, maybe it could be used for other types of, uh, of uh, shellfish uh, fishing. Um, mm-hmm. So that's sort of the, that's the, that's the end game. The end game of seabed mining is having ubiquitously available autonomous swarm marine robots to do other things potentially just as important. Why do we need seabed, seabed mining as a way to get to these ubiquitous autonomous robots that can replant seagrass? We need it because there's money to be made in mining. There is no money to be made in seagrass planting. Maybe you have some nonprofits, you have some volunteers. There's not enough money to develop the technology to be good enough for a swarm to plant seagrass on a huge scale. So we turn, we, we turn to an industry that has a lot of money that's going to pay to develop this technology for their purposes that now can be used by the society at large. Mm-hmm. And do you have any advice for anyone looking to get into deep sea mining? We do need people to become interested in ocean mining. We need students to be studying it. It's not a widely discussed topic, given that it's got global consequences, environmentally global consequences, either positive or negative. It should be an enormous topic, but it isn't, I guess, because it's just sort of out of sight, out of mind, and it's sort of weird and no one thinks about these kind of things so far five miles, five kilometers down. But I would say if you go, there's a great need for people to get into it. Um, and I would say just go into it being prepared to have to defend and stand up for yourself when people associate you with uh, with mining, which is, you know, even though you know, people need, they want their, their iPads, but with that iPad, they'll write letters condemning, you know, mining, <clears throat> not thinking about the fact that they, you know, they rely on these minerals, but they don't want to think about what is required to obtain these minerals. They just want to complain about the processes that are going on that allow them to write that complaint on their tablet, for example. But there are better ways of extracting the minerals we need, and the deep oceans are one of them if it's done right. So it's, it's sort of a complicated set of thoughts and feelings and expertise that goes into this whole topic. And I would say anybody who wants to get into it should should be aware that it's going to be maybe a rough ride and they're going to have to defend what they're doing, but they should do it because we need more people to be talking about the pros and cons. We can't be having these, we can't be having, you know, bipolar discussions or polarized debates on every issue. You know, there needs to be more people that are, that are thinking about uh, the pros and cons, especially something like, like mining and the, the challenge of needing mining to do the things that we all want to do, needing mining to decarbonize and electrify and what, what that means and what, what trade-offs uh, should be considered in on how to do that. Say, I do want to say one more thing about the ISA is that the International Seabed Authority, uh, one of its things it's charged with is setting up regulations, environmental regulations for how these mining companies should go about their work. It's be proving to be very difficult for them because there just isn't enough data on the effects of the current proposed mining methodologies. So we're essentially saying, well, because we don't know what the consequences will be of the current mining methodology, we can't be sure. Let's do it a different way. Let's do it in a way that doesn't damage the seafloor. Let's do it in a way that, that kills almost nothing down there. All right. Thank you very much for talking with us today. Oh, you're very welcome. It's been a pleasure. Sadly, this brings us to the end of this episode. But don't despair, there's plenty more to discover at robohub.org forward slash podcast. And not just our past episodes. 
because Robohub boasts loads more free content about the latest in tech, robotics, including news, features and videos. And if you enjoy our podcast, you can also visit our website to find out more about supporting us through Patreon. The podcast is entirely run by volunteers who freely give their time and so we really do rely on small donations from our listeners like yourself to keep us going. And just a few dollars a month can make a huge difference. So check it all out at robohub.org forward slash podcast and we'll hear you again with a brand new episode in two weeks time. Until then, goodbye. Thank <laughs> you.